Hey, what's going on, everybody? This is your boy, Jay Mace, and welcome to another throwback interview from the Time Machine on Beyond the Album Cover. This interview was with Stephen Clement. He was the executive producer on the all-new Mickey Mouse Club from 1989 to 1991. His TV credits include being a writer for Welcome Back, Kata, Dinah, Three's Company. He co-created Our Magazine and co-produced Body by Jake. Unfortunately, Mr. Clement passed away in 2013 at the age of 68 due to natural causes. At the time of this interview, he was a communications professor at Augusta State University in Augusta, Georgia. We discussed his time in television, working on the Mickey Mouse Club, having a hand in discovering future stars such as Carrie Russell, JC for NSYNC, and the rest of the bunch that came from the House of Mouse and their friendly rivalry with Kids Incorporated, another kid-oriented show that aired on the Disney Channel during this time. You can find the Beyond the Album Cover podcast on all major streaming platforms, Apple, iHeart, Spotify, Pandora, at Beyond the Album Cover. Video content is available on my YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash J85, lowercase j, number 85. And follow the Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Beyond the Album Cover. That's all together. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this throwback interview from the Time Machine Archives with your boy, with Mr. Stephen Clement, right here on Beyond the Album Cover. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is your boy, Jay Mace, live and full effect with the Time Machine on WUAG 103.0 FM, playing the best of new and old school hip-hop, R&B, and everything else in between. With me on the phone right now, I have Stephen Clements, professor at Augusta State University and former executive producer of the new Mickey Mouse Club. Mr. Clements, welcome to the Time Machine. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. It's no problem, man. How you doing? Okay. Good, good, good. Now, let's go ahead and get this interview started. Now, how'd you end up in the entertainment business? I had wanted to be in the entertainment business from the time I was four years old. Uh, as soon as I could walk to uh, in New York City, in Brooklyn, New York, as soon as I could walk to the candy store and buy Variety, which came out every Wednesday, and TV Guide came out on Wednesday, I would put down my money, bring home Variety and TV Guide, memorized everything that was on television, read the box office grosses of movies, read everything that was going on in television, and from that point on, every fantasy I had was going into television. So that's how long ago it was. I actually grew up into television. So I've lived the history of television, which makes me sound like I'm 90. But uh, it was a new medium at that time. Mm, so basically you were around all the, of the days of the I Want My Maple serial tag and Howdy Doody, along with Lone right. Ranger. I grew up into Howdy Doody. I, uh, television didn't go on the air until... Uh, Howdy Doody went on at 5.30 in the afternoon, and uh, I used to go to my uh, neighbor's house upstairs, and I'd sit there, and we'd watch the black and white screen, and then Howdy Doody went on the air, and I, I thought it was the greatest thing, and all I wanted to be was part of it. Right, so kids, this was before DVRs, this was before remote controls, and this was <laughs> before satellite, and you only had three channels, and TV went off the air at around no, 1 a.m. no. ABC wasn't around until 1953. There was CBS and NBC. Mm, NBC Red, NBC Blue. NBC and, and uh, CBS. Okay. I was thinking about the radio network. Oh, NBC okay. Red, NBC Blue, and then ABC came about because the FCC said no one station can own right. something in the market. And that's how ABC came about. Shout out to uh, Frank Donaldson, BCN teacher, for teaching me that. I don't know why I still know it, but I do. So how did you get involved with the Mickey Mouse Club? 
Well, I had been a writer, a sitcom, just to give you some background, I had been a sitcom writer for Welcome Back, Cotter, and for Three's Company and shows like that. And then I decided to go into talk variety. I was a writer for somebody named Dinah Shore. She had a show during the 70s called Dinah. So I knew comedy. I knew the talk variety format. I had been a teacher. So I was licensed. I had been a teacher in the high school and college levels. So here that I was a teacher, I was a writer, I was a producer. And then in the 80s, I did a show, I created a show called Our Magazine with Gary Collins. A lot of parents out there, uh, and maybe some of the listeners uh, have, uh, saw that show. It was the first magazine talk show for women. Uh, and uh, introduced, it was the first show to ever touch the concept of AIDS and women's issues like having a lumpectomy instead of mastectomy. And I did 1,400 of those shows, so I knew how to do magazine television. It, I did Body by Jake with, uh, you know, Jake Steinfeld. Mm-hmm. And then I was reading one afternoon, I was reading my TV guide in 1988, and I read that Disney had done a $5 million disaster a pilot of a new version of Mickey Mouse Club, which was around in the 50s. wasn't my particular favorite, but a lot of people liked it. Uh, and uh, it was a disaster. The, the $5 million pilot, they fired the executive producer, and it, it, they were doing a national search for a new executive producer. And I read about it, and I said, boy, do I not want to go near this. Whoever goes near this is in for a terrible time. An hour later, the phone rings, and it's Disney. Would you be interested in considering becoming the executive producer of the Mickey Mouse Club? And I said, maybe. And they said, would you be willing to meet with us? And I said, how about Tuesday? And I said, how about this afternoon? And I went in, and they gave me the pilot, and they said, come back in 24 hours and tell us everything that's wrong with it. And I studied it for 24 hours, and I told them what was wrong and what I would do differently. And they said, we're interested in you. Uh, I want you to come down to Orlando, Florida, and spend 72 hours there. And we'll uh, talk about what you would do. And at the end of that time, let's decide if we want to work with each other. Well, I did, and we decided to work together. And 10 days after my first meeting with them, I was living in Orlando, and they said to me, and this is a quote, you have four weeks to make this show work. Either you'll be a Disney hero or you'll never work for Disney again. Wow, so Mickey had almost everybody like shook. Everybody shook? No, me. I was the, I was the one who shook. I had a staff. There were a lot of people there. There was a staff of 150. Mm-hmm. It was a million-dollar-a-week television show in 1989. There was a, a cast at that time of... I think 12 or 13, we got up to 24 Mouseketeers, two adults, I always say a thousand parents, and it was going to be a show that a quarter of a million tourists were going to watch over the stage and come around to our post-production center every day. They were going to, a tram was going to go by our offices every three minutes. And this was, we talked about life in a fishbowl, and they were going to do this every day. In fact, we had to work on Saturdays because it was a big tourist day. And for this, we had to turn out five 
half-hour shows every day, uh, every week, rather. And we did this and made it successful. We, got, we got, went on the air in April, uh, April 24th, 1989. And the show, uh, one of the biggest problems, we had to do focus groups. You know, you know about focus groups. Mm-hmm. We take people and you put them in a room and you find out, would you watch the show? And what we found out is that older kids would not watch the show. Why? Mickey Mouse is babyish. And that was our biggest concern. If you get older kids to watch, then younger kids will follow. Mm-hmm. So we went. What we, they let us do this, and this was amazing. They let us mature the concept of Mickey. First, we got away, we got rid of the ears. There were no ears on the new Mickey Mouse Club. Secondly, the face of Mickey. It's as though we we aged Mickey from being a five-year-old, a four-year-old, to a teenager. We matured his face, as silly as it seems. We had an artist do this, and we added a rugby shirt, and we gave, made him 90s cool. Mm-hmm. And that began to be marketed even before we got on this, the air. And then we developed a hip-hop personality of the show. We took the theme, the famous Mickey Mouse Club theme, and we made, gave it a hip-hop uh, theme. So we started with the famous, and, and now it's time to say goodbye to all our company, you know, that everybody knows. And it went into rap. And all the sketches had edge, and all the music had edge. And we had music videos and sketch, and even some serious segments honoring great kids. And it was fast, and it was hip, and we had developed a teen following. We had a mob of teens coming to every taping, and it became a phenomenon. Right. Now, what was the difference between the all-new Mickey Mouse Club and another popular kids' Disney show at the time, Kids Incorporated? Uh, the, the, the problem... Or, or the difference that was not a, uh, a a Disney show that was done by another producer. Oh, but it uh, aired on Disney. It, it it was not done by Disney. Uh, the other producer is um, I'm blanking his name, uh, and I worked with him too. But uh, it, it had nothing to do. It was a Disney competitor. Okay. Yeah. So uh, it was called Kids Inc. Or is Disney called the Kids Inc. And it was a competitor. Mm. You know, and did try to do pretty much the same thing, but. Since I'm, I come from the Mickey Mouse Club uh, school, uh, it it didn't have the depth, it didn't have the budget, uh, and it didn't move as quickly and have as many elements in it, including uh, the reality elements. For instance, we did something for which we won a uh, media access award where we gave tribute to a young man with a muscle-wasting disease and who had a friend and his dog, who did everything with him, including going to the library and handing back a library book. We did. We were shown with a heart, and what we were able to do is create all the personalities, kids related to the the kid who had pimples, the girl who had pimples. They were they were hero kids, the kids you wish you were, and they were the kids that you really are. The kid who isn't as good a singer, the kid who isn't as good a dancer, then they were the stars, the kids you wish you could could be. So we had, we had both. And uh, that was part of the appeal of the show. Mm-hmm. Now, were you a part of the auditioning process for the Mouseketeers? 
Yes, I was part of the process, but I was part of the uh, final process. We had a, a casting director, Matt Casella, who must have seen 50,000 kids at any one time, and there were uh, a couple of different casts. We had, uh, uh, during my first three years there, we went through replacements uh, several times, and then we had the first cast evolved, the top members evolved into a... Um, a rock group that was signed by Hollywood Records, Disney's at that time new label called The Party, mm-hmm. and the uh, so because they and they traveled all around with the top Dr. Dre and and groups like that, and I executive produced their rock, their their specials, so we had a very hip image, and then they would return to the Mouse Club, and that way we got an older audience to watch it, so it became synergy. And, uh, you know, they kind of, like any group, had a limited uh, lifespan. Mm-hmm. Now, what was the process like shooting? Because I know child labor laws, you have to shoot scenes in at a certain time because, you yeah, know, we, all that it, stuff. It was, it was really tough. And uh, I told the story on the E! special, which will, I'm sure, be airing again. I tell it in my book called Showrunner. Um, that's uh, published by Silman James Press. Uh, I had a situation once where we did the first anniversary of the 50s Mouseketeers meeting the uh, 90s Mouseketeers, uh, where during the dance number, one of my Mouseketeers passed out. And he passed out because he hadn't eaten all day, even we were, though we had a complete studio with, with all kinds of foods. Before going on to dance, he got a, a handful of M&Ms and just slobbered down a lot of Coke, cocaine, Coca-Cola, that is. And he went on stage, and he got a sugar rush, and he passed out. The next day in the Orlando Sentinel, I was accused of being a child abuser. Well, the kid was fine, but uh, I, they became much more stringent with me. But they were also perfectionistic. If anybody blinked on camera, we shot with five cameras, and each one was taping at the same time. So we had a cut. If we, one shot didn't work, we had to use another shot. It's called ISOing. If, if we didn't have a camera with a shot that Disney liked, we had to do the entire number again. But if the uh, and there was no time, we, we would be running behind. So at one, on one hand, they were saying, you've got to get the kids out by 6.30. On the other hand, they said, you better be perfect. And it was incredibly stressful. Right. So Disney ran that show with an iron fist. Yes. Frame by frame by frame. So did you have to take the edited show to somebody, like the upper heads, for like approval before it could go out on air? There was somebody from Disney who was in the control room who would uh, sometimes say they would not accept the take and we'd be running behind and she would have some ridiculous reason why, let's say they were uh, jumping on stage, she'd say the girl in the third row in the audience is not, uh, didn't seem excited enough. But it's one kid in the audience. Do the whole thing again and we're running behind. So that's to in-studio, to uh, post-production where uh, they would get a cut and then they would have a whole list of notes and if we couldn't correct the notes, we would have to reshoot things. Now to try to stay 
up on things and get the show out and, and keep moving ahead was nearly an impossibility. And uh, but we did it. And uh, I may say I understand that after I left the show, they were not able to do it. Right now, who idea was it to come up with the Musketeers doing the popular songs of the day? Say again. Say the question. I'm sorry. All right. Who idea was it? in the Mickey Mouse Club to have the Musketeers cover popular songs of that particular time? It, it, it was all the idea of all of us. It, it was part of the concept going in. And um, we, we would, part of our meetings, we had a music department, mm. and uh, we knew we didn't want to do, just make it a sappy show, so it had to be edgy. In fact, we were the first show uh, in 1991 that Mariah Carey was willing to give license uh, for somebody to do besides herself. So we began to develop a reputation. We wanted to do the edgiest songs possible. But once we developed a list of the songs, we had to, Disney had to approve. And then once we got the approval for the list of songs, then they had to approve the concept of how it would be produced and then went through the whole story, came, then came the scenic design, the costume design. And you know, this is the type of thing that you only do on specials. This was for a daily show. So you were, you were looking at 35 shows at a time with different, in different aspects of production. Now, may I add to that, the kids had to have, each child had to have 30, three hours of schooling a day. And I had one young lady whose job it was to color code each Mouseketeer, and at one point there were 24. So she, she had to make sure if it was 115, we had to know that Green, who might be Albert, was in the dance rehearsal hall. I could say, where's Albert? She'd look at the time, and she would say, Albert's recording a song in recording studio. So you had to know where everyone was at every moment of every day. Then by... 3.30, uh, audience in, and you tape the portions for which you needed the audience. Now, what I worked out was that we taped the audience parts every other week, and I filled in the parts that didn't require a studio audience the other, uh, every other week. So basically, I got five shows done every other week because it was the only way to survive. Right. Now, what was everybody's reaction when you guys figured out that this new version of MMC was a big hit, but back in the 70s, they tried it, and it was unsuccessful. We got um, immediately got outstanding reviews in the New York Times and newspapers around the country, and it became, it, it, it caught on. Anybody who watched the Disney Channel between, in 1989, the Disney Channel had very little visibility. It had 3 million subscribers. Remember, this is early in cable. Mm-hmm. When I left in 1991, it doubled to 6 million, and it was only because of the Mickey Mouse Club. Wow. Now, let's back up for a minute. T- talk a little bit about the 50s version of Mickey Mouse Club with Annette Funicello. Right. Well, I, you know, I watched it. I had watched it, but I, I found it too uh, sickeningly sweet. Right. And she was the star, and it was it's, it was interesting that fifty what was it forty years later they all appeared. Annette got a very big fee for appearing on the show, and the others got scale. And uh, we 
we thought maybe she was a little inebriated. It was at the beginning of her, of her multiple sclerosis. She wasn't able to keep time with the dancing, and uh, there was still the resentment among all of them. And, and it was a difficult show to get through, with one Mouseketeer falling down, and the others hating each other, and particularly hating uh, Annette. And um, we got Annette out early because it was so tense in the studio because of the resentments they held for the past 40 years. Mm, so they were resentful for Annette because she was the breakout star of the Mickey Mouse right. Club while they were, like, playing second fiddle. Right. Now, who it's amazing, are... It's amazing how long resentments go on. Yeah. It was now 1990, and the show had been 35 years before. Yeah, that's that's crazy. That just goes to show you kids never hold a grudge. Yeah. Now, I heard at one point that Candace Bergen, a.k.a. Murphy Brown, had tried out for Mickey Mouse Club. I think so. Probably for the, uh, obviously not for my edition, for the uh, Mouseketeer, the uh, 50s edition. Uh, she's about my age. It would make sense. She might have. She mm-hmm. might have. I, I don't know that as a fact, but it's real possible she's in the right uh, age group. Right. Now, who were some of the kids that were on MMC when you were executive producer that you didn't know then that they were going to be stars, but now everybody knows their name. Okay, number one is, and I'll tell you, a very interesting story, Terry Russell. Felicity? Felicity. And she's the most interesting story because we had a, a very pretty girl. You know, you're looking for the pretty girl, fantasy girl. Our fantasy girl had left to become part of the rock group, the party. And uh, Matt Casella, the casting director, had been around the country looking at thousands and thousands of people. And this shows what a fluke it is, whether you become a hit or not. It was three days before we were supposed to go back down uh, from California to Orlando to start the new season, and we did not have a new, quote, pretty girl. And we were in the office, and there were about 25 videotapes, VHS tapes. Imagine every city, major city in the United States. Each tape is another city. New York, Chicago, Denver, Atlanta, uh, uh, Miami. And I said, this is ridiculous. There's got to be somebody on the outtake reel, somebody we can use. Out of desperation. Now, this is the hand of fate. I picked a city. The city happened to the first city happened to be Denver. I put the tape in the machine. First three people or so were were nothing. I think she was fourth. Maybe she was fifth. On comes a young lady who introduces herself as Carrie Russell. In the outtake reel, they had rejected her. And she was beautiful, as we know. And she couldn't sing. But she could dance and she could act. And she was beautiful. And I said, she's perfect. Why did you turn it down? They said, oh, she can't sing. I said, the other thing, she's beautiful, she acts, and she can dance. And they were desperate. And I said, okay, we'll use her. And that's how Carrie Russell was chosen. And within weeks, Jeffrey Katzenberg came down to look at her to put her in Honey, one of the Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Honey, I Blew Up the Kid. It wasn't Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, okay. Honey, I Shrunk Somebody Else, I forget. Uh, but she, uh, immediately they started to use her in movies, and she was on the show for several years, and then, of course, then she became Felicity. But if I, 
my hand of fate had not touched Denver, she would have, you know, maybe she would have been found, but there were so many people out there, who knows? Right. And that's, that really is the nature of the industry. It's just a fluke. Right, it's definitely you got to be at the right place, right time, know some people. And right. The other, the other person who broke out was J.C. Chazet. From NSYNC. Uh, because when NSYNC, he was the first guy, uh, of the NSYNC people to be there. Uh, he was, he joined the cast, he was a nice kid. He, he was so talented, so shy, but when he got up to perform, he had such talent. And then after that, uh, after I left, uh, Justin Timberlake came in and... All the others were living in uh, Orlando, and they, when the show was canceled, they put together NSYNC, and that's how NSYNC was formed. Right. And then at, towards the end of the show, they figured, as, as they show on the, uh, on the documentary, they, had, they felt they didn't have any talent anymore. They only had little Britney Spears, little Christina Aguilera. They had uh, this little kid, Ryan Gosling. And um, uh, just the, those in sync, Justin Timberlake and J.C. Chazet, they figured, we don't have any talent anymore. We're going to cancel the show. And that's typical of any executive thinking. Mm-hmm. Now, that's why I call a definite boo-boo the fool move. Yeah. So, and they, they, they show the on the doc. Of course, by that time, I, I was gone for quite a while uh, three years of that stress was enough for me right now looking back on mickey mouse club did you like i know you probably feel like man i was a part of it, even though you left when justin and Brittany came on but to see all that talent that came out of there like how do you feel about that i'm delighted I'm delighted because uh, uh i feel i set up the structure for what what has obviously I'm honored that um, uh, True Hollywood, that E and True Hollywood Stories, that are the person who uh, put together uh, a series that uh, has become a classic that enabled them to get their opportunity on that show. Sure, it would have been great to have them. I always make it clear that I had left. You know, I, I don't take credit for them. I, uh, that, but I'm glad they appeared. They had that opportunity on the show that I uh, I started and created. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, it's uh, it was, I, I know the experience they, they had. I know they were disappointed uh, that the show was canceled, but uh, they fared very well. Mm-hmm. Now, was Disney very, like, Menudo-like? Because I know there were, there were some kids who were on the show when they was, like, 18, 19, 20. Right. Was it, like, Okay, we want to be younger. So if I see some facial hair, yeah, out the door. They, yeah, they, they didn't. At the beginning, it was supposed to be with the sixteen year out, but they kept raising the bar in age. And I, I even had a very young looking eighteen year old because there was no reason to fire him. He looked young. I mean, if he looked like he needed a shave uh, when he was on camera, somebody would have to go. But because he had, he was of a certain age. In fact, there were certain advantages to have somebody with a little more maturity. Mm. So it's you know someone's actual numerical age didn't really matter. Uh, so, 
I, I think it's like it's like baseball. If you can look young and act young, it doesn't matter what you. If you're Roger Clemens, it doesn't matter that you're 44. If you can pitch, then you're fine. Right now, did the executive producer staff, besides the Musketeers, get their own like MMC jacket? Yeah, they sure did. I got mine too. Although I sold mine. <laughs> right, so you could be like Albert. Steve, right, Justin, yes. Brittany, Terry, Wish Fred, I had that tape. and you. Do, 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 right. do. Now, do you think that MMC could still be going on today? With oh, the- there's no doubt. There's no doubt. I think uh, uh, Disney, I, I think it, it's a type of show that uh, uh, would change to evolve to, to get the, the uh, if there were the right person in there who uh, to help it evolve to get the the uh, tempo of the times, the uh, a bad person would try to would try to keep it what it was back in those years. I, I think uh, you need somebody who would get the uh, a sense of what we're like, what the sound is like, what the uh, what the sketches would be like, what uh, the, the feel is like to evolve just. I don't think it's doing well now, but for many years, Saturday Night Live has evolved from 1975. It does not do well in 2007, but it did for so many years. Uh, I think Mickey Mouse Club could have been like that. It, it's a signature show and should have remained so. Right. I definitely think it would do well on today's Disney because you have That's So Raven, Lizzie McGuire, Hannah Montana, Sweet right. Life of Zack and Cody. Those shows pretty much cater to the tween crowd. And I right. think with MMC, if it was to come back today, it will definitely, you know, get people that used to watch it back in the day watching with their kids with little cousins. Right. It would definitely be a family thing. It, and it could have still gotten the teen crowd in addition to the tween crowd. And I think that's the difference. I think they're cutting off their ceiling of age. And uh, the, the good part about Mickey Mouse Club was that you didn't have to be embarrassed watching it when you were 16. Right. So it was one of those things that you like, shh, don't right. tell anybody. Right. And that was what it, what it was like at the beginning. Then it became okay to watch. And that's what built the the ceiling age became okay after a while because and it as it evolved from Mickey Mouse Club to MMC MMC became okay and little by little we got rid of Mickey Mouse Club to MMC. Right now, what were some of the perks? Some of the perks. Well, it was well paid. It was exciting, uh, and it was. Uh, it was great to get the kind of response. You know, it, it was an adrenaline high. Mm-hmm. And it was good to have a show that had, you know, to do this type of show, you have to be an adrenaline junkie. You have to be a person who likes, you, who, who thrives upon the excitement. of. Uh, you're not a person who likes to sit and, and uh, wait for, waits for 5 o'clock to arrive. It's the excitement of doing the show and really thriving on doing a show, and really likes going into overdrive, because this was overdrive. And in this particular case, three years was my limit. I was uh, uh, One of the reasons I left was uh, that my staff was going to leave. They had had it. Uh, they were exhausted, and it was time for the next group to come in. Mm-hmm. As much as we all loved the show, everybody knew this was time to uh, say goodbye to all our company. <laughs> 
No pun intended. No pun intended. Right. So, what have you been up to since that period? Uh, well, <laughs> somebody's supposed to say, "Well, now you know, I, I work at McDonald's. I'm really enjoying it." Um, no, I <laughs> I reached a point in the late '90s after doing a, a number of other shows. Nothing. I did a show. Uh, you may know Bertie's Berry. Uh, I, I did a, what was supposed to have been a big hit uh, that was not as big a hit to, uh, as it was supposed to be uh, in a syndicated talk show and uh, did some shows that I didn't care for. I didn't like where the industry was going and decided that uh, I was going to make a change and uh, went back into teaching where I started. And I was offered an endowed chair at Augusta State University uh, called the Cree Walker Distinguished Professor of Communications, where, where I uh, head the TV and cinema division, and that's in Augusta, Georgia. And when I got to Augusta, Georgia, which is different from New York and L.A., where I originally lived, I uh, met my now wife and live in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, where I had uh, co-owned a company called Executive Speakwright with my wife, Claudia Copeland. And what we do is we train executives uh, in both business writing and oral communication to improve their presentation. Just as I trained actors and hosts and guests, I now train executives to present themselves well uh, and in media, uh, to uh, be on air, to be on the Internet. And my wife uh, teaches better business writing, and uh, we're executivespeakwrite.com. And we go all over the country training executives, and two days a week, I go over to Augusta and uh, train classes in uh, uh, broadcast journalism, TV performing, uh, TV writing. Wow. So sort of sounds like, basically, like, so what is it like teaching, you know, college kids? Love it. Love it. I see, I, I see them learning and enjoying, and it's... At my age, I really don't want to stress anymore. Mm -hmm. It's fun. I have nice students. They've done very well. It's a pleasure to be able to give them what I didn't have in my education, real-life training. I've not been at just the ivory tower. They call me the non-professor professor because I talk to them about what really is. I try to teach them about the business. I don't try to bring, I don't make it academia. It's for real. Right. So basically, you're not one of those professors that's like, today we're going to learn about Milton no. Burrow no. and Tesla Star Data. Uh, in fact, I'm adding a course this year on the business of, I'm calling it the business of television, but it's the business of media. I want them to learn through my classes what it took me 10 years to learn because my teachers didn't do the same for me. Right. If I was a student at ASU, I would be online looking through the course catalog, be like, um, Stephen Clemens, on what time is this class offered up? Let me drop this class. I want to take his class. So, sounds like you got some very interesting classes. I've gotten some wonderful feedback, and I've enjoyed it. I've been there eight years, and going back in the fall, and uh, so between doing the training for executive speak, speak right and, uh, doing the classes at Augusta State. It's a very full life, uh, and at this point in my life, it's perfect. It's a perfect um, third chapter in my life uh, after the uh, first chapter being my years in New York, uh, the second chapter being the 25 years in Hollywood, 
and third chapter being Augusta State and executive speaker. Right? Okay, and before we go, who are some of the kids that slipped through the cracks during your time at MMC? You know, I hate to give their names because they're still so young, they're going to make it. Uh, a lot of the kids are on the special, and they I still hope they make it. It's not like they're 50 years old. Mm-hmm. They're in their late 20s and early 30s. Right. Uh, I'd say everybody whose name you don't know, uh, there are so many, and they are so talented. And I'm going to be in touch with some of them that were uh, on the special or not, who sort of portrayed themselves as not being successful. Because I, I'm, they used to call me dad. I'm getting them back on the stick and making sure they get out there because I don't want to give their names as being unsuccessful. I want them to be successful, right. and anything I can do to help them, I will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I think I've read on another page they had listed some of the kids that auditioned for MMC but didn't make it. I read oh, yeah, just, I didn't, I had forgotten that Jessica Simpson was one of those who didn't make it. Yeah. She, and she was at the time of Brittany and uh, Christina. Christina. Yeah, and I think I heard in an audition, I think she had to go after Christina, so I was like, uh-oh, I wouldn't want my daughter to go after Christina because no one... Christina had the voice that she has now back then. Right. They say that on the show as well. And, you know, everybody makes mistakes. Uh, and you see so many people. But it's a great... It's a great gotcha for those people because you never forget the uh, auditions that you, you uh, made that they didn't take you for. Right. And uh, what was your take on, this was back during 99, the early 2000s, when the second teen pop phenomenon was big. How did you feel? When, I'm sorry, when when? Okay, this was back during the late 90s, early 2000s, when Bashy Boys and NSYNC was taking off. How did you feel about Orlando being like the epicenter of the second teen pop revival? Isn't it something? Uh, Orlando has become... It, when we first had to go to Orlando, one of the executives said Orlando is the city that begins with a zero and ends with a zero. But Orlando seems to be now a thriving city and uh, a, a city that uh, I, I think because the Mickey Mouse Club people were there, there was a lot of music that came out of there and uh, uh, begats more music people. And, you know, I'm surprised it it hasn't taken off. The Disney Studios did not take off as a production center, but Universal still uses its uh, studios. And uh, there are a lot of music studios in Orlando. And uh, within Sync having been there and Backstreet Boys, obviously it's like Boston was during the, you know, during the 90s uh, with the... Um, What's the group again? Those, the new Kids on the kids, Block. Uh, with uh, Joey McIntyre. New Kids on the Block. I'm sorry. Kids on the, new Kids on the Block, yeah. Mm. And ironically enough, I just wrapped up an interview with Danny Wood. So people, July the 6th, tune in for a Danny Wood interview. That was a little short promo within the interview. Now, Mr. Clements, do you have any last-minute shout-outs before we conclude this interview? No, except I think you've asked great questions. And... Uh, I am glad there's still interest in 
it's become sort of a cult, that whole Mickey Mouse Club era. We were just doing our television show in uh, Orlando, and uh, glad that people remember it uh, so fondly. Right. Ladies and gentlemen, Time Machine exclusive, Mr. Stephen Clements, professor at Augusta State University and former executive producer of the Mickey Mouse Club. Mr. Clements, thank you for doing this interview and hang on the line. Okay, thank you. All right.